about Guantanamo, we also think about torture. And one of the questions I want to pose today is, what do we win by housing Muslim men on illegally occupied land, subverting the rule of law to implement outrageous measures of justice, right, and condoning and committing torture? What do we win by doing this? And does this make us safer? Guantanamo base has shown its value with the CIA and the Pentagon as a place where people can disappear without loss or writs of habeas corpus from not just the Middle East but from anywhere. It has been the site of horrendous tortures and violations of human rights without consequences. I think that this is quite a danger to the African continent, this meeting that's taking place on Bastille Day between the leaders of France and the United States. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam, here with a jam-packed show with so much that is happening here in D.C. In fact, so much is happening here around the country and around the world that the notorious U.S. prison in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, has all but disappeared from the headlines, save for a recent visit to the prison by U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions. And you can't outrun your past. Donald Trump's nominee to head the FBI, Christopher Wray, testified before Congress this week and denied signing off on a memo approving torture for prisoners in CIA or military custody, even though he was assistant attorney general under George W. Bush when those rules were approved, covering prisoners like those at Guantanamo Bay. So today we're going to hear from attorneys and activists who are still very much involved in seeking justice for those among the 41 remaining prisoners at Guantanamo who have been caged and tortured for more than a decade but are not charged with any crime. And Donald Trump says he wants to send more people to Guantanamo, people he describes as bad dudes. So all that is coming up later in the show. But first, we're going to get to our headlines for this week. Now, as I speak today, hundreds are gathering and preparing to march 17 miles from the headquarters of the NRA, the National Rifle Association in Fairfax, Virginia, to the Department of Justice in Northwest D.C. The Women's March from the NRA to the DOJ, organized by many of the same activists who organized January's historic Women's March, is in response to the NRA's failure to condemn the police murder of Philando Castillo a licensed gun carrier, and the posting of two recent basically neo-fascist videos that appear to call for armed conflict against people of color, progressives, and anyone who exercises the First Amendment right to peaceably assemble and protest, especially against Donald Trump. Activist Tamika Mallory, who was individually targeted in the NRA videos, spoke to TV One 
We couldn't allow the NRA to put out the first ad, which is very, very dangerous. It pretty much says, meet protesters with arms, you know, and this is a powerful organization that we know uh, should be doing nothing but talking about safety and de-escalation. Um, and so it puts people, protesters in danger, and we wanted to make sure folks were aware. So we sent them a letter saying, here's our three demands, take the ad down, apologize for it. And since y'all are so busy doing ads and you know having so much to say about protesters, why don't you speak on behalf of Philando Castile, who was a card carrying registered gun owner. In addition to the rally and march starting today in Fairfax, Virginia, a rally will be held tomorrow in DC, that Saturday, July 15th, starting at 10 a.m. in front of the Department of Justice. The group's slogan posted on Facebook is, we know that we are not safe, but we will not be intimidated into silence. Now, advocates for affordable housing from the young to senior citizens also marched and rallied in D.C. on Wednesday in continued protest against Donald Trump's proposed $7 billion cut to federal housing programs. According to the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, the cuts in Trump's proposal would eliminate housing vouchers for a quarter million households and increase rents for all federally assisted households. Senator Elizabeth Warren addressed the crowd at a church on Capitol Hill. We believe that hardworking people should yes, not yes. be kicked out of their homes so that big banks and billionaires can make more in profits. And we will fight back. According to published reports, the House Appropriations, Transportation and HUD subcommittee has rejected Trump's drastic proposed cuts, but still proposes a cut of $500 million to HUD, which will be more than a billion less than what is needed to renew these HUD rental assistance packages in 2018. And finally, hundreds met on Thursday for a celebration rather than a protest in Silver Spring, Maryland, which borders the northern tip of D.C., as Senator Bernie Sanders endorsed former NAACP President Ben Jealous in his bid to run for governor of Maryland. Now we need more than ever at the statewide level a very, very different kind of leadership. And what Ben Jealous is about, he has the radical idea that maybe, just maybe, government should represent all of the people and not just the 1%. Jealous told the crowd that he would work for free tuition at community colleges, boost funding for public schools, and universal health care. Bernie said, we're not here simply to elect me governor. Bernie and I have been organizers since we were young. And the first thing that you're taught is that you do not elect politicians to make change happen. No, you, may, you elect politicians to make it a little easier for you to make change happen, for the people to make change happen, for our movements to make change happen. Let me be very clear, I'm asking you to help put me in the governor's office so it will be easier for us to govern. 
It'll be easier for our families to make change happen. It'll be easier for us to undo with good public policy what bad public policy has done. Jealous said that he would fund his proposals by ending mass incarceration, making sure that big box stores pay their fair share in taxes, and using more funding from the state's lucrative casino industry. Well, now to go to D.C.'s reach and roll beyond our borders, we're joined by on-the-ground contributor, author, and activist Gerald Horn. Well, first, Gerald, Donald Trump has landed in Paris for Bastille Day. I know you have some thoughts about his trip that really aren't being articulated in mainstream media. Absolutely. The performance of the mainstream media with regard to this important trip to Paris has been an abomination. There is a lot of focus on the macho game, that is to say the bone-crushing handshake that President Macron administered to Donald J. Trump during their first encounter, and how supposedly this showed up Mr. Trump. And even if that's true, you have to wonder why the egotistical Mr. Trump would then head to Paris to be hosted by President Macron after Mr. Macron had embarrassed him and humiliated him. I think you can't understand this trip without understanding the new line of U.S. imperialism that Mr. Trump is seeking to execute. That is to say, if Senator John McCain is correct and Russia is simply a gas station masquerading as a nation, then you have to wonder why is the military-industrial complex and the intelligence agencies so obsessed with Moscow? Why not neutralize Moscow? and target the two leading trading nations on planet Earth, speaking of the People's Republic of China, which Mr. Trump is presently seeking to undermine, and Germany, the leader of the 500 million strong European Union and a leading trading nation, which Mr. Trump is also seeking to undermine. Now, to be sure, like many in this audience, uh, I back the exhaustive investigation I hope is taking place by Special Prosecutor Robert Mueller into Mr. Trump's ties to Moscow. And uh, I even back the idea that this will hopefully lead to his resignation, speaking of Donald J. Trump, replaced by the servile schemer, Michael Pence, who will be so weakened politically as a result of these machinations that he will then be defeated like Gerald Ford was defeated in 1976, with Michael Pence being defeated in, in 2020. However, I think that before we get to that scenario, you have to understand that Mr. Trump is wooing France as part of a larger strategy to split the France-German alliance, which is at the heart of the European Union. And, of course, he's going to Paris to remind France that it was the United States that helped to rescue France from being occupied by German forces during World War I. President Fidel Castro, no longer in the land of the living, reminded us before he died that historically, and certainly for a good deal of the past century, it's been Moscow that stood up to U.S. imperialism, that is to say, particularly during the Soviet era, and that even in the post-Soviet era, era as Syria tends to suggest, it's Moscow that's still seeking to stand up to U.S. imperialism. So 
this idea that Russia is going to be neutralized is potentially dangerous, not least to folks here in the United States, because if Russia is neutralized, there will be less pressure on U.S. imperialism, which means that Donald J. Trump's comrades and the Ku Klux Klan of the so-called alt-right will be able to raise more hell than they have done to this point. And in any case, President Macron of France will want a trade-off if he is to embrace Donald J. Trump. And France is the major exploiter of the African continent. Mr. Macron was just in Africa just a few days ago, and I suspect that the military plans that Paris is cooking up for West Africa in particular will then be joined by the United States as part of this trade-off. I think that these plans that... Well, wait a minute. Before you talk about those plans, why do you think that Macron would actually want to partner with Trump? It's not clear that he will want to be an ally of Trump if that will spell damage to the European Union. I don't think that's in the cards, and I think that Trump may be engaged in wishful thinking to that degree. But I do think that Mr. Macron will want military assistance with regard to his plans for West Africa, and that's where the real danger lies. You and I have discussed how the U.S. and French-backed destruction of Libya has had such a catastrophic impact on Africa. What kind of plans do you think that Macron has for Africa, which is reeling in many ways since that time? Well, Algeria is still a major exporter of energy. It's a former French colony. I would dare say that there will be dedicated plans for Algeria that the United States might want to join, not least because the United States is also becoming a major exporter of energy, uh, natural gas and oil, not least. So I think that this is quite a danger to the African continent, this meeting that's taking place on Bastille Day between the leaders of France and the United States. And I don't want to end our conversation without asking you about Brazil. You know, it has the largest Afro-descendant population outside of Africa. And so what are your thoughts about the impact of former President Luis Inacio Lula da Silva being convicted on corruption charges? It's potentially devastating. What I find striking about this conviction, number one, is that the judge who presided over his case may also be running for president of Brazil next year. Second, recall that just some months ago, the successor to Lula, his hand-picked successor, Dilma Rousseff, was removed in a kind of administrative coup. There is a possibility that her successor, uh, President Tamer, may also be indicted. And in any case, Lula plans to run for the presidency again in 2018. He's appealing this conviction. He's not been imprisoned. If he wins his appeal, well, then obviously it may be smooth sailing back to the presidency. If he loses his appeal, particularly before this election, he may wind up in jail, and his Workers' Party may not have time to select a successor. However, if he wins the presidency and then loses the appeal, which is also a possibility, my understanding of Brazilian law is that he will not then be jailed as president. But obviously the situation in Brazil right now is quite dicey. 
Well, we'll certainly be watching all of these issues on this side of the Atlantic and on the other side of the Atlantic. I've been speaking with Gerald Horn, author and activist, frequent contributor to this show and across the Pacifica Network. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you for inviting me. Children of the world, are you ready? Are you happy? Are you happy? Are you happy? Tell me why. Colder than July, the milkman don't stop by. To bring my high fruit to scorn, sell my brother instead of daddy. Bring me back in the bag full of daddy. I know what is wrong with my problems. I think it is me. I think it is she. I think there's something wrong with this damn country in which I'm living in. Constitution paying dividends. All these intellectuals surround me. So peripheral, all around my vocal. My vocal is disrupted, interrupted. Speed coming, Jackson's, you know what's coming. Planes hijacked, and I got people in the back, and I got people in Afghanistan. Never coming back. What's going on, my man? Haven't seen you in a while, brother. Tell me, tell me what's up. That was What About by Dem Atlas, who performed at the kickoff for the X Games, which are underway in Minneapolis. Now, with so much happening here around the country and around our world, the notorious U.S. prison in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, has all but disappeared from the headlines, save for that visit we mentioned earlier by the U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions to the prison about a week ago. So now we're going to hear from attorneys and activists who are still very much involved in seeking justice for the remaining of the 41 prisoners at Guantanamo who have not been charged with any crime, but have been caged and tortured for more than a decade. And this is as Donald Trump says he wants to send more people to Guantanamo, people he's described as bad dudes. The speakers are on a panel Islamophobia and Guantanamo in the Trump era held July 6, 2017 in Northwest D.C., sponsored by the Institute for Policy Studies in conjunction with Witness Against Torture, the Center for Constitutional Rights, Defending Rights and Dissent, the Washington Peace Center, and D.C. Justice for Muslims. The first voice you'll hear is the organizer and moderator, Maha Halal, the IPS Middle East Fellow, and a steering committee member of Witness Against Torture. The reason we came up with this event is because Witness Against Torture just concluded a campaign called Forever Human Beings and 41 Men at Gitmo. And the goal of the campaign was to highlight the cases of the 41 men who remain imprisoned at Guantanamo Bay. Before we get to the main substance of this event, I wanted to start by reading some poetry, again from former prisoners at Guantanamo, um, and to help me with that, uh, my lovely colleague, Domenica Ghanem, will be reading some and telling you a little bit about the men whose poetry she will be reading. And this one's by Adnan Latif. He was cleared for release four times at Guantanamo, but he died in 2012 of an alleged suicide. And he also participated in hunger strikes um, before his death. Um, and this poem is called Hunger Strike Poem. They are criminals increasing their crimes. They are criminals claiming to be peace-loving. They are criminals torturing the hunger strikers. They are artists of torture. 
They are artists of pain and fatigue. They are artists of insults and humiliation. They are faithless, traitors and cowards. They have surpassed devils with their criminal acts. They do not respect the law. They do not respect men. They do not spare the elderly. They do not spare the baby-toothed child. They leave us in prison for years, uncharged, because we are Muslims. Where is the world to save us from torture? Where is the world to save us from the fire and sadness? Where is the world to save the hunger strikers? But we are content on the side of justice and right, worshiping the Almighty. And our motto on this island is Salam. Thank you, Dominica. So I'm sure most of you in this room are somewhat familiar with Guantanamo Bay Prison. It was opened on, at least in the context of the war on terror, on January 11th of 2002. The prison has held 779 Muslim male prisoners, and at present there are 41 prisoners who remain. Five of them have been cleared for release. 26 of them have neither been cleared nor charged. And seven are in military commissions, and three others have been convicted. Now, this issue, the issue of Guantanamo, has received significantly less attention over the last 15 years in which it's been in operation. And despite the fact that there are only 41 prisoners that remain, it's still important to shed light on what is happening at the prison, not only because of what is continuing to happen to the prisoners who remain, but also because of what it represents for the United States, a country that purports to be one that is democratic, that adheres to the rule of law, that abides by practices and principles such as due process. So it's really important when we think about what it is that the United States claims to stand for, to think about Guantanamo as a direct challenge to those principles. The other thing to keep in mind is that there have been over 700 prisoners who have been released. Many of the prisoners have written extensive articles or memoirs, have given interviews with various media channels, and it is very clear from the experiences that they described that they are extremely traumatized. They are often placed in third-party countries where they don't know the language, where they have no connections to their family or friends, and where the U.S. government has essentially left them there without any meaningful way of adjusting to their new culture or society. So Guantanamo Prison, Guantanamo Bay Prison, is a permanent fixture of the war on terror. And we have to think about Again, what does it mean? What does it mean for the prisoners who've been detained, those who are still detained, and the fact that we're talking about this in the context of the Trump administration, and Trump has said in the past that he intends to fill the prison with who he called bad dudes. Now, we don't really know what that means, but it's conceivable that it could mean, for example, sending those who are detained as ISIS fighters. So we really need to think about Guantanamo Bay in the context of the war on terror and to really think about what does it mean if we don't shut it down? What does it mean for its legacy? And another thing I think is very important to mention is that Guantanamo has practically become synonymous with torture. You've probably heard much of the torture that's been described at Guantanamo. You're probably most familiar with um, what was described in the Senate Intelligence Committee report on torture, which described the torture that many experienced at the hands of the CIA, and some of the prisoners that were tortured in these CIA black sites were subsequently sent to Guantanamo. 
So when we think about Guantanamo, we also think about torture. And one of the questions I want to pose today is, what do we win by housing Muslim men on illegally occupied land, subverting the rule of law to implement outrageous measures of justice, right, and condoning and committing torture? What do we win by doing this? And does this make us safer? So I'm really excited for the panel we have today. To my left is Luis Rambo. Um, he was born and grew up in Cuba, where he has family in Havana and San Fuegos. He's a longtime citizen of the United States. He follows U.S.-Cuba relations very closely. For some 11 years, he published a newsletter on the subject of Cu the Cuban-American Alliance, a national nonprofit group opposed to the blockade of Cuba. Recently retired from the D.C. bar, he worked for many years as an assistant attorney general in the office of the D.C. Attorney General's office. To my right is Aliyah Hussein, who is the advocacy program manager at the Center for Constitutional Rights, where she manages advocacy and public education around detention at Guantanamo and travels to Guantanamo regularly to meet with uh, Center for Constitutional Rights lawyers and clients. In addition to public speaking, organizing events, actions, and rallies, and serving as a liaison between lawyers, activists, and um, her work focuses on developing new and creative partnership with artists, musicians, and activists to bring the stories of their clients to new platforms and audiences. Prior to coming to the Center for Constitutional Rights, Aliyah was a legal assistant for the American Civil Liberties Union Women's Rights Project. She graduated from Vassar College with a degree in history and holds a master's degree in gender development and globalization from the London School of Economics and Political Science. And to the left of Luis is Lieutenant Colonel Sterling Thomas, who is a lead military defense counsel for Mr. Ali Abdulaziz Ali, a 9-11 defendant from Pakistan, currently being tried on capital punishment eligible charges before the Guantanamo Military Commissions. Lieutenant Colonel Thomas recently secured the release of his other client, Mr. Abdullah Zahir, an Afghan citizen detained without trial by the United States for nearly 15 years. Lieutenant Colonel Thomas received a direct commission as an Air Force Judge Advocate and entered active duty in June 1999. He has extensive criminal and civil courtroom experience, having appeared in the District and Superior Courts of North Carolina, nearly 100 military courts, marshals, U.S. federal district courts, and military commissions. So I'm very excited about our panel today, and we're going to start off with Luis talking about the context of Guantanamo from the Cuban perspective and from a sovereignty perspective. Good afternoon, everybody. I'm here to tell a story of islands and archipelagos. In 1898, the U.S. entered the world stage as a competitor to the empires of Britain, France, and especially Spain. In that year, the U.S. defeated Spain in two battles and took as spoils of war Puerto Rico, Guam, the Philippines, and Cuba. This was the fulfillment of Thomas Jefferson's dream. Separately, it also annexed Hawaii. Having carried out the genocide of the Indian nations and tribes during the entire 19th century, the expanding country was ready to consolidate its conquest from coast to coast. From there, it would vault to points in the Pacific Ocean to the west and south to the Caribbean Sea. Already visionaries in Washington sought to build a canal through the isthmus. In 1903, the U.S. pushed to create a new country, 
Panama by secession from Colombia. Quick negotiations led to a treaty that allowed the building of the interoceanic canal. Ships for war and trade would be able to move between the Atlantic and the Pacific in record time. The U.S. would control the new waterway. But the peoples of the new colonies did not cooperate. Puerto Rico and Cuba, with parallel and coordinated parties for independence, rejected the intervention of the U.S. The Filipinos also fought for independence, following their leader, Emilio Aguinaldo. Guam, a tiny island at the same latitude as the Philippines, could do little and neither could Hawaii. Puerto Rico fought on for another half century, but it could not resist the imperial power and remains a colony to this day. The U.S. faced a fierce fight against the independence forces of the Philippines, prevailing by force of arms. After a bloodbath, the archipelago became a colony of the U.S. for 50 years. The Philippines were desirable not only for their many natural resources. They were the door to Asia, close to China, Vietnam, and Indonesia. Similarly, Hawaii held out the promise of profits from sugarcane and pineapple industries, and it was also a near-perfect location for a mid-Pacific military base. The overthrow of Hawaii's queen, Liliuokalani, was justified by an asserted need to defend the west coast of the U.S. from Asian threats, as well as, more generally, by the fantasy of manifest destiny. U.S. historians have called this period the birth of American imperialism. The U.S. media had been churning out provocative articles about the Spanish mistreatment of the Cubans. The people were ready to help their Cuban neighbors to become free after 400 years of colonial status. However, the banks, corporations, and investors wanted more, and as did the military agencies. At the time, the Cuban population was around one and a half million people, compared to that of the U.S., 76 million people. Cuba was a small archipelago with an area like that of Pennsylvania. Aside from sugar fields, coffee plantations, and farms, Cuba still had virgin territory. Cuba had been devastated by the war. Fortunes could be made by U.S. companies that got in early. Amidst the tension with Spain, the U.S. sent a warship, the Maine, to Havana Harbor. It exploded, and the U.S. blamed Spain. Later, it was determined that the Spaniards had not done it, and that more likely the coal compartment had caught fire, detonating the ship's explosives. By then, however, the U.S. had declared war against Spain. A splendid little war, said John Hay, the Secretary of State. The Cubans were indispensable for the U.S. victory at Santiago in April 1898. The next month, a Navy battle at Manila, won by the U.S., confirmed the fall of the Spanish Empire. It confirmed also that Spain's empire had not been just overthrown, but replaced by a new one from North America. For four years, Cuba was a colony of the U.S., but in 1902, 
the U.S. found a way to grant Cuba a limited independence so as to focus on the war against the Philippines. A writer on a war authorization put forth by Connecticut Senator or Orville Pratt provided, among other appropriate conditions, that the U.S. retained authority to intervene in Cuba as it saw fit. The text inserted into the first Cuban Constitution was called the Platt Amendment, which remained in place until 1934. As part of the negotiations over independence, the U.S. claimed for itself the Isle of Youth, which is the large round island to the south of the main island, as well as bases at several of Cuba's best harbors to the northeast and the northwest and on the southeastern coast, which was Guantanamo which was and is a city next to the harbor. In the end, only Guantanamo base was ceded by treaty under a lease. The lease remains in force for as long as the U.S. wants. It was obtained by threat of arms, which in law means that it is void. But the balance of forces does not favor Cuba. Now why Guantanamo? Geography explains a lot. Guantanamo is at the far southeast of the island, facing Jamaica, and very near to Haiti, Dominican Republic, and Puerto Rico in succession. You can draw a straight line on the map from Guantanamo between Jamaica and Haiti directly to Panama. The base was enough to ensure military control of the Caribbean Sea. It was called a naval coaling station, for at that time, Warships ran on steam generated by burning coal, and there was no air force anywhere. The lease provides that the land may be used only as a naval base. It can be argued easily that prisons and torture rooms involving captives from a distant continent who are held illegally are not normal fixtures of naval coaling stations. It does not matter, because U.S. forces are the most powerful in history, the U.S. can veto any vote at the United Nations, and the people of the U.S. or the representatives in Congress don't say much about the base, especially in the case of those in Congress who insist in not closing the prison at Guantanamo, let alone agree to end the lease. Guantanamo base has shown its value for the CIA and the Pentagon as a place where people can disappear without loss or writs of habeas corpus from not just the Middle East, but from anywhere. It has been the site of horrendous tortures and violations of human rights without consequences. U.S. courts recognize that Guantanamo, of course, ultimately belongs to Cuba, which in the illegal lease is but the lessor. But at the same time, they say that the U.S. has total dominion over it. Cuba's laws do not apply, say the courts, but neither do the laws that apply to U.S. territories. It is essentially a lawless place run by the U.S. Navy, and that is just fine with the Congress. The nominal payment to Cuba under the lease has been rejected on principle since the revolution. The U.S. checks are not cash. The last adjustment of the lease, of the lease in 1934 stipulated a payment of $4,085 thousand dollars annually for the use of a 45 square mile territory. That is about $91 per square mile per year for prime harbor side land. 
The context of the forced treaty for the U.S. Navy base at Guantanamo is one of imperialism and colonial greed, a spurt of interventionism and hegemony at the beginning of the 20th century. Do I exaggerate? Albert J. Beveridge, historian and U.S. Senator from Indiana, had this to say in 1900. The sovereignty of the Stars and Stripes can be nothing but a blessing to any people and to any land. By 1912, however, President William Howard Taft would go farther further and proclaim the day is not far distant when three Stars and Stripes at three equidistant points will mark our territory, one at the North Pole, another at the Panama Canal, and the third at the South Pole. The whole hemisphere will be ours, in fact, as, by virtue of our superiority of race, is already ours morally. Fidel Castro proposed to turn the base into an international medical school for countries that cannot afford their own training facilities. This or any similar proposal would allow the U.S. to have a role in Guantanamo, but for peaceful purposes, while Cuba also would not make military use of the installations left behind. But nothing like that is likely. Why? The U.S. does not need a coaling station. The Pentagon can reach every inch of the Caribbean from home, whether for intelligence from satellites or for air attacks. Florida bases alone can have warplanes over Cuba in a blink. Cuba has controlled narco-trafficking in its waters and cooperates with air controllers and airport inspections. The Pentagon is not worried about Cuba's defensive forces. Rather, the U.S. has found Guantanamo Base handy for other reasons. Some are symbolic, and some have to do with domestic politics. Some are practical. The base is leveraged for purposes of eventual negotiations over normalizing relations. And the U.S. has a nearby but inaccessible prison for whatever it chooses to do. Dismantling the prison and revoking the lease cannot be achieved by force. Any solution must be political shaming the U.S. into giving up the remains of its notorious colonial pace in the Caribbean. You, we, are part of that effort. Thank you. You are listening to participants on the panel, Islamophobia and Guantanamo in the Trump Era, held July 6, 2017, in Northwest D.C. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, produced for WPFW Pacifica Radio in Washington, D.C. We'll be back with more from the panel after this break. Everybody knows that they're guilty. Everybody knows that they've lied Everybody knows that they're guilty Resting on their conscience, eating their inside It's freedom, said it's freedom time now It's freedom, said it's freedom time now 
Time to get free Forgive ourselves up now It's freedom Said it's freedom time Yo, there's a war in the mind Over territory for the dominion Who will dominate the opinions Schisms and isms Keeping us in forms of religion Conforming our vision to the world Church's decision Trapped in a section Submitted to committee election Moral infection Epidemic lies and deception Insurrection Of the highest possible order Distort and I take recorders from here That was like War in the Mind by Lauren Hill Here on On the Ground On the Ground Show.org Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital I'm Esther Ivarum And we're going to return now to our panel Islamophobia and Guantanamo in the Trump era Guantanamo has long been a fixture in the news cycle, and most recently, unfortunately, so is Islamophobia. But we rarely see these two things discussed together, let alone while uplifting the humanity of those directly impacted. And we most certainly don't see those things alongside the perspective Luis just shared with us, which is to say this is a very special evening, and on behalf of CCR, I'm really grateful to be a part of it. So Guantanamo was created to be a place outside the law, as we've heard, um, where hundreds of Muslim men and boys were brutalized. So to the rest of the world, America's allies and enemies alike, it has grown to be a symbol of physical and psychological torture, uh, and America's post-9-11 embrace of lawlessness and injustice. It's an experiment, which pushed the boundaries of what is acceptable to do to other human beings. It's, it's only the most extreme end of what is deemed possible and acceptable for the treatment of Muslims by the United States. We see it with the profiling, criminalizing, and othering of Muslims in various contexts. For example, post-9-11 immigration roundups and detention of Muslim, South Asian, and Arab non-citizens, mass suspicionless surveillance of entire communities, the Muslim, the Muslim travel bans, etc., to name a few. And as part of the legal team at CCR, I've made several trips, as Maha mentioned, to Guantanamo to meet with our clients. And so many misconceptions were dispelled within just a few minutes of meeting them. For one, many of them were my age or just a few years older, which when you think about the fact that they had been detained for 10 plus years, um, that meant they arrived at Guantanamo when they were 17, 20, 25, etc. Um, and they were people, right? They were human beings like us, and we talked about the things you would talk about with anybody. We talked about food, families, my job, sort of what movies they might be interested in or what books they'd like us to buy them. You know, Guantanamo was created to dehumanize and isolate these men, which is why those meetings would be so frustrating because I knew that if the public actually had a chance to meet the people that we were meeting, maybe more people would care about the fact that Guantanamo existed. But the layers of secrecy that are in place really prevent the world from understanding who remains and why. So I'm pleased to say that some of the men that I've met with over the years are now free and are finally getting the opportunity to live their lives, um, but some of them remain detained and their futures remain uncertain. So to understand the future of Guantanamo under Trump, we have to understand how President Obama left it. He reinforced it and even built upon the architecture that President Bush put into place after 9-11, a system that goes against human rights norms, the rule of law, the values that supposedly constitute the bedrock of this country. So indefinite detention has been normalized, which is not surprising, because if you say something's wrong for such a long time and it still exists, you know, it becomes normal. And, you know, people can say that we don't believe in it, but we obviously believe in it, or this country believes in it if it continues. The Obama administration normalized the idea that you can hold men for 10, 15 years because of a perceived threat of what they may do if they were released. The military commissions continue, um, which we'll talk about later, although all signs point to the fact that it's, it's a huge failure and are unjust rather than bringing justice. 
and five cleared men are stranded there, despite the fact that every agency with a stake in national security approved them for release. Uh, one of those men is a CCR client, uh, Sufyan Barhumi, who's a 43-year-old Algerian man. He arrived at Guantanamo in 2002 and remains there despite the fact that the Obama administration cleared him for release. Uh, last month, he entered his 16th year at Guantanamo. And just to give you a snapshot of, of really how arbitrary detention is, um, how arbitrary the categories are of prosecution, indefinite detention, cleared for release, etc. I'll, I'll just tell you a little bit about Sufyan's story. So over the course of his detention, charges were brought against him on three different occasions, but were dropped each time. President Obama's 2009 task force placed Sufyan in further limbo. He was slated for continued indefinite detention, a category of men the government was unable to try, but felt like for security reasons they needed to continue to be held. In 2012, he offered very publicly to plead guilty to anything the government was willing to charge him in order to get a date by which he could finally see his elderly mother. The response was that there was nothing they were willing to charge him with. In 2013, Sufyan participated in a mass hunger strike that had near universal participation in the camps. For those of you who remember the hunger strike in 2013, prisoner led, and that's really what brought the spotlight back onto Guantanamo, and eventually led to the resumption of transfers and the periodic review boards, which were tasked with reviewing the status of prisoners in the indefinite detention category. So in August 2016, a periodic review board approved Sufyan for transfer and noted quote, that continued law of war detention of the detainee is no longer necessary to protect against a continuing significant threat to the security of the United States, end quote. The board recommended his return to Algeria. So when Sufyan's lawyers and I met with him in November, just days before the election, we said our goodbyes, as we usually do when we say goodbye to our clients. Inshallah, the next time we will speak with you or see you, you'll be a free man. But this time, we had every reason to believe that it, it could actually happen, that it would only be a matter of months, maybe even weeks, before Sufyan could join the wave of prisoners that we expected would leave before Obama left office. So after all that he experienced for, you know, 14 plus years, there was finally light at the end of the tunnel for him. So Sufyan started to give his possessions away to prisoners who were leaving so they would remember him and to those he thought he was leaving behind books, watches, other gifts that were brought to him by his lawyers, because that's the kind of guy he is. He and we did not, what expect, did not expect what would follow, that Donald Trump would be elected president, and that President Obama would leave men his own administration had cleared for release, stranded at Guantanamo. In the final weeks of the Obama administration, it became clear that plans were not underway for his transfer. Uh, so my colleagues um, at CCR filed an emergency motion asking the courts to order Obama to send him to Algeria. Um, a court-ordered release would sort of bypass legislative restrictions and allow the administration to move more quickly. Sufyan wanted to go back to Algeria to return to his family, and the U.S. government had repatriated over a dozen Algerians over the years without incident. So weren't we on the same side uh, as the government in wanting a cleared man to return home? But Obama's DOJ opposed the motion, and we learned that reasons that he wasn't transferred to Algeria really had nothing to do with him, uh, just an inability for both governments to agree on the terms of conditions with the government, the Algerian government. Um, so politics is the reason that Sufyan Barhumi is at Guantanamo today. Now we have a president who's pledged that not only will he not close Guantanamo, but he'll potentially bring new prisoners. I think public perception is that the government really has done everything that's humanly possible to close the prison, and now we're at an impasse. And then we also need to grapple with the fact that the group that's left is comprised of men who are not all cleared. 
some of whom have actually been charged and convicted of crimes. But that shouldn't mean we should advocate for any less for the closure of the prison. And I think we've seen with the Muslim ban and all the groups that have mobilized around that, what's possible when you have uh, people mobilizing on the streets, lawyers litigating in court, and a whole lot of other work in between. So it's been inspiring to see that, and it would be really great as an advocate who's been working on this issue uh, to see some of those people be brought in to the issue. And I just want to read a couple of lines from a poem that I actually revisited around the Witness Against Torture campaign. It's called There's a Man Under That Hood by Luke Nephew, who is a peace poet, someone we work closely with in Witness Against Torture. And one of the lines that was a, sort of a part of the campaign was, are we going to pretend that they are less than men and just walk away? And then the poem ends with, and to the people of my country, do not pretend we are seeking freedom or justice or any common good until we are ready to respect the human rights of every single man under the hood. Uh, I'm Lieutenant Colonel Sterling Thomas, and before I get started, I have to read you, because I have a clearance, this proviso that the disclaimer that the uh, United States wants me to read every time. This presentation does not represent the official position of the United States of America, the Department of Defense, or any person other than its author, myself, and Mr. Abelucci. This presentation is not based upon classified information and should not be read to confirm or deny the information the United States considers classified. Everybody got that? <laughs> Excellent. Okay. I'm Sterling Thomas. I've been a lawyer since 1997. I joined the military in 1999. When I became a lawyer, I went to what's commonly known as an HBCU in North Carolina, historically black college or university, and I wanted to be a civil rights lawyer. And I practiced for about two years in North Carolina and was doing small firm work, getting ground up as a junior associate. And someone told me, you know, if you become a JAG, you'll actually get to do real litigation and a real opportunity to train and learn. And they were right. I quickly went from being just some lieutenant to being a captain who was in charge of prosecutions of people who were alleged to have committed certain crimes. I went from that to being a uh, senior captain who was prosecuting some of the more serious crimes in the United States. In fact, I was uh, part of the prosecution of one of the last uh, capital charge cases in the United States, uh, Air Force, excuse me, in uh, 2006 time frame in Georgia, the United States versus Witt. After I finished that prosecution, I'd done about three years of just solely on-the-road prosecutions of, or declining prosecutions, because I actually had the power to say, that charge is no good and we're not going to go forward with that. That kind of power and discretion is within a prosecutor, and a reasonable prosecutor will do that kind of thing. And I mentioned that as foreshadowing. We'll come to that when we get to the commissions. After I did that for a few years, I became uh, a student here at George Washington, got a master's in something very boring. I did something very boring for a couple of years. Uh, environmental law. Uh, sorry, it's like watching paint dry for a criminal litigator, but it is very important. <laughs> uh, so after a couple of years of doing that, I was invited to become a member of the prosecution of the military commissions. And I had been paying attention. I'm not an idiot. I understood that this, the trials at Guantanamo were more political than prosecutorial. So I spoke with my mentors about whether the normal rules that apply to the prosecutor's ability to handle his case apply, whether we were actually comporting with what we expected in courts martial. And I did not get responses that made me comfortable with taking the job, so I declined it. A year later, I was uh, contacted by my assignments leader and said, hey, come on in and be a defense lawyer there. And it took me no time to make the decision. Some of you may know Jess Braven. Jess Braven uh, is an uh, author. Uh, he's been down to Guantanamo a number of times, he's a writer, and he wrote a book called The Terror Courts. When he was doing promotions for The Terror Courts, he used a phrase that I like to point out here. 
Um, he said, as he observed the military commissions at the time, it seemed that the prosecution was in the normal role of the defense, trying to hide as much as possible, trying to belay as much information as possible, and the defense was in the normal role of the prosecution, trying to get as much out as possible of what was going on down here so that we could seek some semblance of justice. And that kind of speak, spoke to me, because that is exactly the kind of work I've been doing since I came in. I've analyzed two cases for my clients at Guantanamo, one for Abdul Zahir and one for my current client, Amar Al-Baluchi. And in both cases, many of the things the government is charging are laughable. Uh, laughable in that the facts don't match up with the law, or the facts that they've gathered have been gathered in violation of law, and if they were tried under normal practice, would not happen in the United States. But we're not in a normal place. Uh, I believe you said, Luis, that we're in a place where they have subverted the rule of law. And that is exactly what has happened. We have a daily fight about what part of the Constitution will apply, and we still haven't got an answer from the court about which provisions apply. We routinely cite the 6th, the 8th, the 14th Amendment as uh, applying to our clients, and routinely the government will stand up and say, we don't believe that's the case or not this time. That kind of uncertainty doesn't exist in Article Three courts in the United States, but it's how the war crimes tribunals in Guantanamo operate. Amar's bio goes back, boy, he'll be 40 this year, believe it or not, August 29th, he'll be 40 years old. He was uh, raised in Kuwait. He's considered a Pakistani citizen, almost a stateless person. His uncle, you may know more famously as Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, he spent time in Iran. He is a very intelligent young man who has uh, a, a grasp of our culture uh, beyond mine sometimes. He can make pop culture references and I have to go, what is that? And he's already caught up on whatever current thing there is and I have to get educated from him about this. This is a kind of intelligent man that I, I, I talk to on a, uh, every other day or every week basis. He has spent now, uh, since 2003, in United States custody. He was kidnapped off the streets of a country uh, and taken into black sites for three years. During that period, he suffered uh, the indignities and uh, inhumane treatments that can only be imagined, and unfortunately, because of classification guidelines, I can't really get into. But suffice it to say that if you understand what secondary PTSD is and how you can get it, I've got the full dose. Uh, he has the front-line, first-line treatment and understands exactly what it means when man is inhumane to man. That went on for years, and he was turned over to the authorities at Guantanamo in 2006, shortly before President, then-President Bush announced we are closing the black sites and these men are now being held at uh, Guantanamo. But it didn't really change very much. Some of the most vile practices weren't carried on, but the inhumane treatment of these men was. So the conditions of confinement were uh, horrific. The treatment of these men was routinely debasing um, and in violation of our international laws and protocols. So what they did a few months after that was said, okay, you're no longer with the CIA. We've let you sit still for about uh, two, three months, and now we're going to bring in a new team, uh, the FBI clean teams, and they're going to interview you. And all that bad stuff that they did to you, forget that. We're going to take fresh statements from you about what you did. Folks of you who have law backgrounds understand that the fruit of the poisonous tree doesn't end just because they stop beating you with a rubber hose, just because they stop dunking you under water until you think you're going to drown to death. Those kind of things, that bell can't be unrung. 
and the government seeks to say that the taint has been attenuated because they gave him a pack of M&Ms and let him sit still for a little while, and then they ask him nicely, what did you do? It can't be unwrung, and the law supports that provision. But we haven't reached the point where we can address that question yet with this court. Why not? Because this court is a juvenile justice system. More than 200 years ago, we started our Article I and Article III courts in the United States. The military commission started its second round after failing at the Supreme Court level in 2012, and we still haven't sorted out the rules. What evidence will come in? What's classified? What's not? We recently had a reversal of what charges could be brought in, because conspiracy, uh, we argued successfully before the War Crimes Tribunal, was not a war crime. It went up to a uh, Court of Military Commission's review, and that has been overturned and pushed back. That's going to go to the Supreme Court. This case has taken five years, and we're still sorting out the rules, the charges. And one thing that um, my co-counsel, we often talk about when we're making addresses like this, people died on September 11th. 3,000 people died in the towers, at the Pentagon, and thousands of survivors followed them. And we hold them in our thoughts when we think about this justice that's delayed is impacted them as well. But why is it being delayed? The government has made these choices because they want to hide illegal conduct, because they want to convict with inappropriate evidence, and because they have little regard for the rule of law, they have more regard for gaining a particular sentence. Some of the things we're facing right now, uh, on the 15th of July, we're supposed to go back for another hearing. This current hearing we're going back for would be, I think, the 39th or 40th pretrial hearing we've had since 2012, and we will potentially address whether we'll have a hearing to determine whether they even have jurisdiction over my client, Omar, and one other of the gentleman named uh, Mr. Adama Hassawi. You see, when you assert that a person is a combatant, you have to prove it. And the government, in 15 years, has never offered that evidence. We've had to ask them to do that. And so we're going to fight about which witnesses come in, when will we hear from them, and whether the government's proof or our proof will be heard. But things that are that simple, that would have been handled in a court-martial within weeks, and even the federal district courts within months or years, we're still sorting out. And uh, here's an interesting personal fact. I'm retirement eligible in 2019. I think I'll still be working on this case when my kids are in college. And they're only 8 and 10 right now. Well, let's give the speakers a round of applause. You have been listening to participants on the panel Islamophobia and Guantanamo in the Trump Era, held July 6, 2017 in Northwest D.C., sponsored by the Institute for Policy Studies in conjunction with Witness Against Torture, the Center for Constitutional Rights, Defending Rights and Dissent, the Washington Peace Center, and D.C. Justice for Muslims. Participating in the discussion was organizer and moderator Maha Halal, the IPS Michael Ratner Middle East Fellow, and a steering committee member of Witness Against Torture. Also, Aliyah Hana Hussein from the Center for Constitutional Rights, and Luis Rombo Esquire from the Cuban American Alliance Education Fund, and Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Sterling part of the defense team of one of the prisoners at Guantanamo Bay. And that will do it for today's show, raising up the voices of people telling a different story and telling a different side of the U.S. maintaining a torture prison on illegally occupied land in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba.
You can reach the show at onthegroundshow.org, where you can also listen to all of our shows. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On The Ground Show. I'm Esther Averam. Keep raising your voice. Peace. (laughs) Thank you.